Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Our websites are clark.com and clarkdeals.com. And I want to give you an intersection of a couple of items. Earlier this month, we had uh, someone who was a former pharmacist talk about the pressures of having been in the industry, the short staffing, and the dangers that the short staffing and pressure to fill so many prescriptions causes. And that intersects with a story I talked about a couple of years ago about how often prescriptions that you get at a pharmacy are inaccurate, that either you've been given the wrong med or the wrong dose of a med. I want to make it clear, pharmacists work their tails off, and it's a business where a minor, uh, what you could call clerical error, in dosage or a lot of medicines have similar names or a doctor may have handwritten a script instead of submitting it electronically and the name of the medicine is similar to another one there are any of another number of circumstances that can lead to an error that could kill somebody well in Oklahoma it's gotten a lot of uh, unwelcome publicity for CVS recently Oklahoma has fined CVS because of a pattern of errors in CVS locations with errors made in filling prescriptions with health consequences for patients, for customers, problems with staffing, all the rest. And this is an ongoing problem. The, and I'm not specifically talking about CVS, but this is a problem because of the issues involved with staffing the low margins that it may not feel like low margins when you go to fill a med but the the prescription business has become a very difficult business to generate profits just ask independent pharmacists what they face trying to keep their doors open and make even a nickel on a prescription so the financial pressures have led to essentially unofficial quotas that put unreasonable levels of pressure on pharmacists to fill meds with the point for you and for me with any med that's being filled please look closely at the label one simple thing to do is if you're ever handed a paper script that you're taking to a pharmacist, take a picture of that script on your phone. When you get the med, compare what's on the label on the med to what the script said that the doctor had written that he or she gave you. If it's an electronic submission, that's not going to be as easy. But if you're taking a maintenance med, you know the name of the med, and you know the dosage. I have to fill my meds through um, one of those PBMs, a pharmacy benefits manager, where the prescriptions come in the mail. 
And every time they come, I look at them very closely. And there's a maintenance med I take that is a generic now. And it seems every three months when I get my 90-day supply, the pill looks different than it did the time before. So I always am looking at it to make sure that the description on the label is the right med. Because if you take the wrong med or in the wrong dose, the consequences really could be losing your life or losing your health. So I feel so bad for the people who work as pharmacists at the chains because the pressure on them is ridiculous. It's time for your questions that you posted at Clark.com slash ask. Producers Kim and Joel alternating. And Kim, who do you have a question from? This is from Rogine in Georgia. Rogine says, I bought a spa tub recently from one of the big blowout sales that happened in January. I've had issue after issue after issue. I talked with customer service on two different occasions, but now I can't get return calls or returned emails. The tub is obviously defective. I've written letters, you name it, I've done it. So recently I reached out to my credit card company and they said they're doing what they can and I'll hear back soon. I'm not looking for a refund. I just want a replacement tub. How would you work your way up in this chain to get resolution? All right. So you said something important. It's a chain. And what has become the most effective way to get a response from a chain when they are failing to serve you is to embarrass them on social media. You don't want to tell a long story. You want to tell a short story. Any humor you can put in it, you put in it, and you just succinctly explain on every form of social media you can that you use, or if you have a family member who uses social media, get them to help you. You post about the business, and the odds are pretty strong that within hours or days, in many cases, hours, you'll have a response from someone at the company trying to set up a direct message with you to try to solve the problem so that you're not clobbering them on social media. The other thing I would do is file a complaint against the business with the Better Business Bureau. It's a very quick, simple process at BBB.org, and you put in the name of the company. It'll find which local BBB chapter takes complaints about them, And I have found the Better Business Bureau complaint system, even though all they really do is forward your complaint to the company, to be extremely helpful more than half the time and leading to a resolution nearly half the time of an ongoing problem I have not been able to resolve with the company. This isn't the kind of organization that's a bunch of crooks. They're just not doing their job and so you got to push the right buttons. Joel? Clark Tyler in Ohio says, we are looking to start saving for our five-year-old's college, but college isn't necessarily a guarantee in our family. So what's the best place to put money for her future in case she doesn't end up going to college? Both her mother and I currently fund retirement accounts through our places of employment, and I also fund a Roth IRA. Okay. I love how you set that up with how you asked me the question, because... In a case where college is 
possible but not necessarily going to happen. And you have some headroom there where your wife can set up a Roth IRA. You could fully fund yours. Money that you intend to potentially be for your child's college, you can put in a Roth IRA because contributions to a Roth can be pulled out at any time for any reason. You know, I prefer that a Roth stay there specifically for retirement. But in a case like this where your finances probably don't permit enough money to fully fund a Roth, use it as an alternate college fund for your child. They go to college. You then can take money out of it tax-free, penalty-free, as long as you don't take out any earnings, and use that as an alternative means of paying for college. And if your kid doesn't go to college, then the money just stays in there and continues to grow for your retirement. Kim? Matt in Missouri says, my 19-year-old son has no credit. He recently took out a car loan in order to gain some credit. He's able to pay off the loan in a couple of months. Should he make monthly payments for a certain period of time, or is it okay if he pays it off quickly? Will it it still help his credit? Yeah, so having the credit history paid as agreed is the important thing. He now will show this item on his credit, but I would like him to do a couple of things before he pays off that loan. One, set up a Credit Karma account so he can see where his score approximately is now. Uh, Credit Karma will also be able to advise him on whether or not there are any credit cards he can be approved for now. Credit Karma has an artificial intelligence system Um, or I may be overselling it, it may be they're just told by credit issuers who they're likely to approve based on their Credit Karma profile so that you don't do uh, what's called a hard-hit application for credit and then get declined. Credit Karma will tell you the odds of being approved for a card. You can then apply for it right through there. And if you get a card issued then that's another step on the ladder to solid credit. I have other suggestions as well. If that process isn't going to shake a credit card loose, a credit union membership may help get a card. In addition, the PETAL card, P-E-T-A-L card, is a Visa card that is issued using non-traditional criteria to issue that card any of a number of these things. So before paying off the vehicle loan, let's get another form of credit. The clearest path to that would be a major credit card, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, or Discover. Joel? Clark Rita in Georgia says, my daughter put $5,000 into a dependent care FSA, and due to COVID, she hasn't used a penny of it. So will there be a way to roll this money over to use next year? Is there anything that could be done to not lose that money? So this has been a moving target with the rules. The first thing is to discontinue contributions for the remainder of the year. Employers are not required to allow you to do that, but most are because there's a special provision of one of the coronavirus relief laws that allows you to do that. As far as being able to uh, have flexibility with what's normally an inflexible account, I've been hoping that Congress would explicitly allow that for health care accounts and dependent care flexible spending accounts for this year only 
as part of what this next coronavirus statute is going to be. But I don't know if that's going to make it into the mix. Trent is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Trent. Hey, how are you doing, sir? Great. Thank you, Trent. So you have an unusual real estate question for me, don't you? Yes, sir, we do. My wife and I just bought a piece of land with a house on it, and it's a family land that's on my grandparents' side. And my in-laws have asked to sell their house and possibly move on the land and build their final house. So it was kind of a total question of, uh, you know, real estate thoughts and things to go through and just any other general ideas that you might have. Well, first things first, and I'll just ask it in a silly way because there's no easy way to ask this. What's your relationship like with your in-laws? It's great. Um, No hiccups, no issues. You know, we're close, but never been neighbors close. So are you thinking that you're going to sell them a sliver of your land and that's where their home will be? Or are you thinking that you're going to have like a family compound and their structure will be on land that you own? So more than likely, I'd have to either uh, gift them or sell them a piece. Yes, that's that's the right answer. Okay. (laughs) That's the right answer. I was trying to get where your head was at. And definitely you want it to be clean. If they're going to, if you've got a big plot of land, like how much land do you have there? How many acres? It's 50 acres. Okay. There's still family togetherness and distance at the same time. Yes, sir. How many of the 50 do you think you'd slice off for them? It would be minimal, you know, enough for their, you know, say an acre or two. I don't know that they want ownership of any more. Then that's perfect. Just enough to have the house and yard. Yeah, I mean, don't feel nervous about that at all. That sounds absolutely a great thing. Uh, Your in-laws that will be really close to their daughter. I, I think that's easy. So all you need to do is you'll need to find a real estate lawyer in the county where this land is. And if you have one in mind, perfect. If you don't, find somebody who's a real estate lawyer who can do this transaction for you. It won't be big legal fees. And you're thinking of giving the land to them or selling it to them, which is more likely? Yeah, I don't know the best answer. If it was a sell, it'd be a minimal price. So just give it to them. Okay, just to... A be the gift then? Yeah, just give them the gift because if it's less than $15,000 in value, there's okay. no tax implications. And okay. you just give them an acre or two of your 50. Then from that point forward, they got their land and where they're going to build their house. And then you've got theirs. Uh, you've got okay. yours. And I think that's really kind hearted of you since this is something that's from your family. But if it works for you and works for them, I would go for it. So then I have one complication to ask you. Yes, sir. What happens if you give them the land and then they never actually move and never build a house on it? Are you okay if that ends up happening? Yeah. My more concern is the not necessarily them not building on it, but in 15 years, you know, you never can predict the future is if, we need to sell or they need to sell and now we have a stranger on the land 
versus a family member. You know, right. You, so, you know, you don't know what's coming around the road health-wise, financial. Sure. Um, and that would be my biggest concern versus. And that will the, happen. I mean, that will happen. There will be a stranger living in that property eventually, almost certainly. Right. So you got 50 acres, so come up with a slice that uh, has them close by, but not too close. And it should work out really well, even down the road. It's great you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you have. So I'm all about trying to help you build a more solid financial future to overcome financial obstacles you have in your life today. And you rely on me, you depend on me to give you guidance and advice that will help you meet your goals and overcome those obstacles. But there are times you may be listening and you're like, huh? What did Clark just say? And things not as nice as that in reaction to things I'll say. And there may be times you disagree at the opinion level or the advice level. And I want to hear from you because this show is truly dedicated to being of service to you. That's why we have Clark.com slash Clark Stinks, where you can post where you feel I let you down. Weekly, our producers, Kim and Joel, read highlights from Clark Stinks to you right here on the show. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. All right, Clark, I don't necessarily love reading you, Clark Stinks, but I do love that sounder. That is still the best intro ever. Isn't it? It is. But, you know, one day, I mean, we've been together for 23 years. Maybe one day we just let you think of all the things that I've frustrated you about over the years. And you can just read your version of Clark's thing. How long is the segment again? I don't, I don't know if it's going to work. three hours long. <laughs> can, is that enough or do you need I, I more? Think, I think I'll make it work. All right. Okay. But today we're going to start with Carl. Carl says, Clark started his show recently suggesting that if you book future travel, you should shop for travel insurance, possibly through Insure My Trip. Add the cancel for any reason option. Yesterday, we went to book a winter trip to Mexico. I looked on Insure My Trip and I discovered that no one is currently offering the cancel for any reason option for this trip. I assume it's because due to certain circumstances, the amount of claims would be entirely too high. And just so you know, I don't think you stink, but on rare occasions like this, I think you are misinformed. Well, I appreciate that post so very much. I'll go dig and see if companies are embargoing cancel for any reason insurance. I have not seen that anywhere that that has happened, but I will dig in. And if that is the case, I will make sure to correct what I've said right here on the show. Joel? All right, Clark, we got a message board user, SCVIL, wants to talk about private equity in 401ks. And he says, Clark, why do you throw out your free market libertarian philosophy when it comes to possible new 401k private equity rules? You suggested private equity opportunities are only for the wealthiest and most sophisticated of us. That may or may not be true, but knowledge is power. And I personally do not appreciate being called poor and dumb uh, to have the same opportunities as others. 
It's our 401k money. Shouldn't we have the free will to do whatever we want with it, regardless of how unsophisticated you think we are? Would you also suggest that school choice is only for the wealthiest and most sophisticated of us? Thank you for that. I will tell you that I believe that 401k plans are best when they have very limited menus of choices. Uh, When you have too large a menu that people have a hard time choosing funds and knowing how to build a portfolio for long-term success. Private equity investing is something that is a supplement generally for wealthy people who are already doing the fundamentals of saving and investing for the future. And so a 401k for most people is baseline investing. It's where you build your core of money for your long term. So having private equity choices in it without good disclosure and very high fees seems to me a recipe for people ending up in trouble and having enough money for their long term. I was not saying that people should not have access to private equity because they're not wealthy. It's really the opposite that people who are wealthy already have their base of money in place. And if they choose to go explore outside what would be a normal portfolio that builds financial security and they want to do private equity thing is kind of like uh, an additional feature of their investments, that's fine. But a 401k is about building that base. And in my opinion, Private equity has no role or no place for that. Kim? This is from Kelly. Kelly says, you don't stink, but I wonder if you should rethink your advice to wait until age 70 to collect Social Security in light of COVID. Like you, I'm in my mid-60s with underlying health conditions. It's asthma in my case. I always was confident that I'd live to 90 or better based on general good health and fitness, And I had planned to wait until 70 to claim Social Security, but I don't need the money right now. But should I go ahead and start taking Social Security, given that my lifespan might be shorter than I had thought? This is a question a lot of people have. People are much more worried in the face of coronavirus with their mortality, their risk of dying from this pandemic. And when you are... 65 or older, your chances of dying from coronavirus are exponentially higher than when you're younger, especially when you add what medical people call comorbidities. What a cold way to call having pre-existing things like asthma in your case and my case. And I've got three pre-existings and I'm also 65 And I'm still going to wait because if you don't need the money to live on, knowing even with our heightened risk from coronavirus, the overwhelming percent of us even that get it at our age are going to survive somewhere in the range of, uh, if you end up hospitalized, I think 80 some odd percent of us will come out okay, will come out of that hospital. So I would rather not needing the money and for you not needing it that you still kick the can down the road, um, assuming we're both going to survive. And when you do take Social Security later, it'll be a much heftier check 
and it'll be there if you do, in fact, make it to what you expected, your 90s. And I wish you long and healthy life. But right now, a lot of people are saying, forget that. I'm taking Social Security today because I don't know if I'm going to be dead next month. And I understand that because there's a lot of reasonable concern and fear about having our lives shortened by coronavirus. But I am not changing anything in spite of having not one, not two, but three pre-existing conditions. Joel? Clark Randy says, thank you for all of your advice and the information you share. I'm a regular listener and I love your show. However, the other day you said something that made me shake my head. You said electric cars weren't quite there yet for your recommended used car list. While I agree with your sentiment to an extent, if you drive less than 70 miles a day, there's a lot of value in a recent model uh, electric car. For example, a little over a year ago, I bought a 2017 Ford Focus Electric with a 100-mile range from Carvana with 10,000 miles for $17,000. I went from $4,000 a year in gas, two trips a week to the gas station, and $1,000 a year in maintenance to a slight increase in my electric bill, and I still haven't needed any maintenance on it. The car looks like any other uh, and drives fine. For me, it was a $5,000 raise just for switching cars. I love your post. So the number of people who could benefit from having a used electric car is a massive percent of the driving population. From an empirical um, scientific standpoint, from an objective standpoint, but people fear range. They fear range anxiety. And so for a huge percent of the used vehicle buying population, where people drive in a normal time, roughly 30 some odd miles a day is what the average person drives, a used electric vehicle with shorter range would work perfectly and they cost basically nothing to run and own once you have them. But most people are overcome with the fear of having a vehicle that you're on such a short leash with. If you can overcome that fear, buying a used electric vehicle is a great purchase, but most people can't do that. Kim? This is from Adam. Adam says, the Roth IRA was created as a vessel for the middle class for retirement. This is the reason that there are income restrictions. I believe that it's hypocritical of us to portray large corporations and big banks as bad guys for using tax loopholes, but then also indulge in them ourselves. Congress and the IRS have been giving their blessing to the backdoor Roth for a long time, but I would imagine that this is mostly self-serving. I know you only provided this as an alternative for a caller, but it still stinks. Thank you. I appreciate that. And the moral and ethical aspect of that, you presented very well. For those of you who are not aware, there are income limits on contributing to a Roth IRA. And above that level, there is an escape hatch, a loophole called the backdoor Roth, which is kind of an informal term that makes it possible for somebody who does not income qualify to still do a Roth with a fair amount of extra work. So should that loophole exist? If we accept as a society that having those income limits that restrict higher income earners from having a Roth if that's what we feel is good public policy, then the poster is right. It should not be possible 
are allowed to do the backdoor Roth. Joel? Kale says, just a bit smelly, Clark. Absolutely cherish what you do, but wanted to bring up a small correction in regards to credit scores. When you pay off debt, you unfortunately lose the credit history associated with that debt, and it can be detrimental to your credit score. I see this frequently with clients uh, with student loans when they pay them off, and then their score drops 30 to 60 points. That's why I tell them to leave a small balance if they plan on getting a mortgage. Once they get the mortgage, I have them pay it off. If you have other old credit, this isn't a problem, but if you don't, it can really hurt you. All right, so that is a very interesting post from someone who is a loan officer. So there's a couple of things here. Your credit history doesn't change the length of your history. But what does change is your active credit mix. And that's why you'll hear me talk about making sure you have at least two credit cards, two major credit cards from two issuers as protection for yourself as you pay off other types of loans. I appreciate all your posts. We educate each other and we help each other. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Vince is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hey, Vince. Hey there, Clark. Greetings. Well, I understand you're calling to talk about having suffered abuse as a child by being forced to listen to me when you were very young. (laughs) Yeah, I was locked in the car with my dad, and uh, he listened to your radio programming religiously. But happy to report, now that I'm an adult, I gladly listen to your podcast. So that's why I'm here today. Well, I, I know that so many people who suffered being forced in carpool lines and things like that to listen to me uh, and just would roll their eyes as adults are like, Hey, I'm glad I learned all that stuff I didn't want to learn. So it works <laughs> it's out. It's all very useful information. Thank you. I've come to realize. Well, how can I be of service to you? Well, thank you, sir. My question is pertaining to refinancing. And uh, let me give you the lay of the land. I'm currently in year 24 of a 30 year mortgage uh, for a condo. Now, year 24, does that mean you have six left or you have 24 left? I'm sorry, I have 24 years left on a 30-year mortgage. Okay. We're currently at an interest rate of about a 4.375. Oh, you're going to blow that out of the door, aren't you? Well, so here's the question. I'm trying to figure out if it makes sense to refi for another 30 years. No. Or does it make sense, (laughs) and at what point does it make sense to refi at a 15-year fix? And I'm starting to get my fillers out to see what are the rates, et cetera. And right now, some of the quotes that I've gotten back is for 15-year refi, that'll put me at approximately 2.75 in interest and around 2.8 for APR. 
I and do they know it's a rental property? Costs. Did you say it's a rental? They do know it's a rental property. Yeah. Like, that's fantastic, 2.75. What are they quoting on a 30-year? 30, I'm getting uh, around a 3.1, 3.2. It would obviously be significantly less than where my rates are currently, even sure. if I were to do a 30-year. But I'm just trying to figure out what are some factors I should take into consideration and what do you recommend? All right. So there's really only one scenario I look at with this. If you take on the 15-year loan, which is what I'd want you to do, because I wouldn't want you to go from a 24-year mortgage back to a new 30. So that's six additional years in mm. debt with it. But if you did the 15-year at 2.75%, the payment's going to be how much more per month than what you have right now? So not taking into consideration any of the closing costs or origination fees, all that aside, it would be approximately increase about $200 a month. And how much cash flow are you getting from the rental property? For now, it's it's pretty good. We bought at you know six years ago, so it was kind of still at the lower part of the market, you know. But I just don't know what the rental market is going to look like in the next couple years. Assume that my tenants continue to stay, then sure. we should be fine. But if the market continues to swing downward, the rental market that is, we would be getting in less than what we're getting in now. But I would not have any problems increasing the monthly payment buy 200 bucks if that's oh, what you're if, you, if you could handle the 200 a month you're cool with that definitely do the 15 year refi if you got really okay. nervous there's something that i've only become a believer again lately and that is in a refi scenario like yours get quotes on a 20 year fixed mm. you won't necessarily get a lower rate than you would on the 30 year because you're not going to the 20 years kind of like a side market. So the rates end up being equivalent to what they are in a 30, but you would not be adding back six more years into your loan. You'd be subtracting four from it and you'd be paying a much lower carry in interest. Uh, so that would be the compromise. But my first best choice would be for you to do the 15 year loan since you can handle it. The effects of what's going to happen with the real estate market, I know of nothing that's going to lead to an extremely long, brutal recession. It would take something else other than what we're experiencing right now. And so I would not make a change based on the factors of coronavirus, since this is a long-term play. If it were my money, 15 years would be it. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.